Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is 1 John chapter 4, where I'm looking in my Bible, and we're going to begin there momentarily. If you would be getting your Bible out and be finding 1 John chapter 4, you're going to notice one verse, and in particular, one little expression in that verse that will help us get underway in this part of our worship. As you're finding 1 John chapter 4, let me join in the welcome that has already been issued to you. It is great to see everybody this morning, and it is so good to have such a fine number in attendance today. On this first day of the week, it is the Lord's Day, and it is especially good to have uh, some guests in attendance and even some folks that I'm meeting for the very first time today. So glad that you've come to be with us, and we hope and trust that you're finding everything that we do today to be in keeping with the teaching of the New Testament, and we hope that through what we're doing today, we are help, helping you, as we hope you are helping us to draw closer to the Lord. That's what we're trying to do, is to help each other to serve the Lord in a faithful kind of way so that we can be with Him in heaven for all of eternity someday. I want to get right to it this morning. In 1 John, the fourth chapter, let me draw your attention to the statement that is made at the beginning of verse 12. In 1 John 4, and in verse 12, John says, No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. Now, there's a couple of different ways that that statement could be read, depending on your particular perspective. For example, a Christian might read that verse and say, No one has ever seen God. Well, of course. God's glory is too magnificent and too awesome for human eyes to behold. No one is able to see God and live, the Bible tells us. And so it really kind of goes without saying that no one has ever seen the Lord. But of course an atheist, a non-believer, they might read that verse and they might say, No one has ever seen God. And you know what? No one ever will. Because God doesn't exist. You can't see someone who isn't real. If there really was such a thing as God, then all of us would be able to see Him. Because after all, seeing, seeing is believing. Now, as disparate as both of those points of view are, there is at least one thing that both Christians and atheists can agree on, and it is the fact that you can't see God. Raise your hand this morning if you have personally seen the Lord any time recently. Just as I suspected, 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, continues to be true. Where we differ, though, with atheists and with non-believers is in how we respond to that truth. Because as Christians, as the people of God, our entire lives are shaped and ordered by our faith in that God, the God that we cannot see. Whereas the non-believer, the non-believer is just completely unfazed by all of that. The non-believer's life is unaffected by thoughts of God because as far as the non-believer is concerned, out of sight and out of mind. In fact, if non-believers could really just say what it is that is really on their mind, and many of them are quick to do so, they would just flat out tell us that we're stupid, that we're just absolute idiots for what we believe. I mean, come on, what kind of moron gets up early on a beautiful Sunday morning like this and goes down to a building to sing and to pray and to worship and even give their money to an invisible God? Come on, bless your little hearts. I guess you all never moved out of that phase of having an imaginary friend, did you? Well, let me just ask you, Christian... When that question does arise, 
Can you possibly believe in the existence of a God that we cannot see, we cannot smell, we cannot touch? How do you answer that? How will you answer that question? And you know, even if somehow you were to live your entire life without anybody ever confronting you and asking you that question, can you answer at least in your own mind why it is that you believe what we just sang? There is a God. And He is alive. What we're talking about this morning is about having an informed faith. Not a blind faith. Not a second-hand faith. But a rational, reasoned faith that can be explained and can be defended. Christian, can you do that? Well, this morning, I want to, in my small way, I want to help us in that direction. I want to try and equip all of us with some ideas that will help us to be ready always to give an answer, to give a defense for why we believe in the most fundamental of fundamentals. Why do we believe in the existence of a God that we cannot see? And at the very same time as we're doing that, as we're getting equipped to answer that question of non-believers, I hope as well we are then strengthening our own convictions for having faith in an all-powerful, all-seeing, and all-knowing God. Now to do that this morning, I need to begin by just addressing that very common objection that I've already alluded to. I need to start by just addressing that seeing is believing thing. Non-believers just regularly come back to this idea. You know, if you can't see Him, then how can you know there is a God? You can't see Him, you can't touch Him, you can't smell Him and hear Him and observe Him in those ways. He is not tangible. When you talk about God, He's, he's not something that you can, you can weigh Him, you can measure Him, you can't detect Him with a radar. His presence does not register with any of our five senses. I need something, I need something tangible. I need something that I can put in a test tube. I need something that I can poke and scan and test it in a laboratory. Seeing, uh uh-huh, seeing. Seeing is believing. I can't see God, therefore I'm not going to believe in God. Well, how do we answer that? What is our response to that? I'll tell you what we respond to that about. We tell people that the truth of the matter is, we all believe in lots of things that we cannot actually see with our eyes. For example, I often wonder, I often wonder, do atheists believe in in love? I love my wife very much. And I'm pretty sure she loves me too. But I cannot prove my love to her by putting that in a test tube. I cannot prove my love by performing the scientific method on it in a laboratory. I can't do that. I can't go out and gather me up a bunch of love and put it in a bucket and hand it to my wife. But you know, just because my love cannot be measured, just because it can't be detected in that way, that doesn't mean that love doesn't exist, does it? What it means, though, is it means that love is not subject to those kinds of tangible processes, those kinds of physical measurements. And you know what? That's exactly what we are saying about God. That God cannot be seen. He cannot be touched. He cannot be smelled. He cannot be detected with physical processes. God, God is very different than us. Do you remember those very first three words in John 4 and verse 24? 
As Jesus is talking with that Samaritan woman at the well, we have that verse on the screen at the beginning of every service. John 4, 24, Jesus says that God is spirit. Spirit. What's a spirit look like? What does a spirit feel like? How much does a spirit weigh? I don't know. I don't know the answer to any of those questions. Because that is entirely outside the realm, the physical realm that I know and that I can answer about. Which means then that science is very, very limited in what it can prove and in what it can verify. Scientific concepts and scientific devices, they do not apply to things like love or the immortal soul or even God Himself. Science cannot prove that God exists. And furthermore, science cannot disprove that God exists. It doesn't have the equipment to do either of those things. And so while the non-believer likes to make a real big deal out of this seeing is believing argument, the truth of the matter is we all accept and we all believe things all the time that we cannot see, which then gives us the opportunity to really take this conversation where it needs to go, and that is to look at some evidences for why we believe what we believe. When we talk about faith in God, that, that is what our faith is built upon. It is built upon evidences for God. That is what faith entirely is built on. Do you know that passage in Hebrews 11 verse 1? In Hebrews chapter 11 and in verse 1, the Bible actually gives us a great little definition for faith right there in the text. In Hebrews 11 verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for The conviction, or I like the New King James Version, the evidence of things not seen. Whenever we are asked, why do you believe in a God that can't be seen? The correct answer is not, well, well, I just feel it in my heart. I just know. No, that's not the right answer. When someone asks, why do you believe in a God that you cannot see? The correct answer is not, well, I've just always believed that. That's what my mom and dad taught me to believe and that's just how I was raised. No! Those are bad answers. Those are lame and dare I say, those are insulting reasons for faith in God. We need something deeper and better than that. We need to be able to point to the evidence that helps to build faith in the things that are unseen. And so having dealt with that very common objection then, let me set before you this morning four evidences for faith in God. Four evidences for the faith in the God that we cannot see with our human eyes. And these are, I should tell you, these are not the only four evidences. But I think these are four big ones. These are four really good ones. And I've tried to structure things today to be in such a way that everybody of every age is going to be able to understand, young people especially, as you will be assaulted with these kinds of things, the older you get as you work your way through middle school and high school and into college age, you're going to be confronted with these ideas. You need to know how to give a response, how to give an answer. Four very simple evidences that all of us can grab onto to build a strong foundation of faith. And I want to begin that right here in Hebrews. If you're still here in Hebrews, just jump back to chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3... The Hebrew writer points to this first evidence for the existence of God. In Hebrews 3, look in verse number 4. There the Hebrew writer says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Every house 
is built by somebody. Do you know what that is there? That is the law of cause and effect. Every house has a builder. We all understand about that. We all know about the law of cause and effect. If you were walking out in the woods and you happened to look down on the ground right there, kind of in the grass and in the leaves, you noticed a, a wristwatch was right there on the ground. As you see that watch sitting there on the ground and you pick it up to look at it, no one, I mean no one would say, oh, looky there. That watch just popped into existence. That watch just came to be out of nothingness. Perfectly assembled. Keeping perfect time. Oh, I'm so glad this watch just came into existence on its own. No! None of us would say that. We know. We see a watch like that. We know there has to be a cause for that effect. Somebody caused that watch to be. And that's exactly what the Hebrew writer is saying here in Hebrews 3 and verse 4. Every house has a builder. And we are, when you think about us, we are living in a huge house. We're living in a huge house called the universe. The universe is a giant effect. And I want to know the cause of this big house. Which means then that the non-believer is left to answer the question, how was all of this caused? All this stuff that we see around us, everything in our big gigantic universe, how was all of this caused? Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, atheists will argue that the universe, it was caused, but it wasn't caused by someone. Rather, they will argue that it all just popped into being. For example, Stephen Hawking, who is one of the most famous, most foremost atheist in our world today, he wrote in his book, The Grand Design, he said, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason that there is something rather than nothing. I'm at a loss for words. Are we supposed to take that seriously? If that did not come from the mouth of the so-called smartest man on the earth, if that didn't come from the mouth of somebody who had all kinds of PhDs and doctorates hanging on his wall, would anybody really pay attention to what that guy is saying? Would anybody really believe that? That something came from nothing? That the universe just created itself, really? If a mother said to her teenage son, Johnny... How did those cigarettes get in your jacket pocket? And Johnny says, Well, you know, Mom, the laws of science say that even though there was nothing in my pocket, those cigarettes just spontaneously created themselves. Moms, are you buying that? Absolutely not. Nobody's buying that. What comes from nothing? Nothing! Nothing comes from nothing. Mr. Hawking, what do you mean? Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe will create itself from nothing. If there's nothing, then there is no gravity. When there's nothing, what you have, see if you can follow me here, there's nothing. Nothing comes from nothing. Now, when you're talking with an atheist or a non-believer about these things, as soon as you say that this universe, it had to be caused. It had to be caused by someone, and we believe that that someone is a divine being. Then they're liable to fire back, alright, you believe the universe was caused by God. Well, answer me this, smarty pants. What caused God? 
What caused God? Uh huh. What about that? If every effect has a cause, what caused God? And you know what? That sounds like a very sophisticated kind of question. In fact, you hear that question, it might actually give you pause for a moment. But I want you to know that that is really the atheist attempt to say, Squirrel! And to get you sidetracked and distracted because of the fact that they are incapable of giving an answer for the existence of this universe. They cannot supply a reasonable explanation for the cause of all of this. The truth of the matter is, when you talk about that question, what caused God? That's just not even the appropriate question to ask. Because when you're talking about the law of cause and effect, we're talking about things that deal with nature and natural phenomena. Everything in the natural realm, like our universe, it does have a cause. But there are many things in this life for which you cannot ask that question, what caused that? Like, for example, what caused blue? We got an answer to that? What caused blue? What caused love? What caused ideas? What caused the number four? What caused liberty and freedom? You see, there's lots of things that are really beyond the scope of those kinds of cause and effect sort of questions. Look at Exodus chapter 3 with me. In Exodus chapter 3, you remember this story, Moses has this encounter with the burning bush. And we see exactly why this question of what caused God, we see exactly why that question just does not work. In Exodus chapter 3, I'm reading in verse 14. In Exodus 3 and in verse 14, there God said to Moses, I am who I am. God is eternal. That's the significance of that statement there. That that is part of His nature. That is part of who He is. That is why God refers to Himself as the I am, the always existent one. What all of that says is, is that God is uncaused. God is not an effect of something else. God is in fact the cause of everything. God has no need to have been caused or created because He exists outside of time and space where the laws of cause and effect do not operate. God is eternal. To ask, well, who caused God or what caused God, that is to ask a completely nonsensical question. That would be like asking, hey, did you see that married bachelor? That just doesn't work. Or, hey, did you see that square circle? That just doesn't work, does it? There's something that doesn't compute in all of that. And in the same way for a person to ask what caused God, that doesn't fit, that doesn't work, because God is not subject to the laws of cause and effect. But our universe, this house that we are living in, the universe most certainly is subject to cause and effect because the builder, the builder, God, He is the cause of all things. Hebrews 3 verse 4. He is the builder. He is the creator. And so since we're talking here about God being a builder and a creator, since we're thinking about creation, then that gives us an opportunity to point out this second evidence for believing in the God that we cannot see. And that is the fact that, is the fact that our planet is finely tuned for life. Just as this world was not self-created, neither is this world self-sustaining. 
Look with me in the very beginning. Look in Genesis chapter 1. Just go back to the very beginning page of your Bible. In Genesis chapter 1. Non-believers would have us to believe that the formation of our world and our planet, that it was all just the result of a big random chance coincident accident. The big bang, if you will. But that's not at all what we read here in Genesis chapter 1. Just notice there, in Genesis chapter 1, look in verse 3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. Got down to verse 6. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. Verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, He called them the sea. And God saw that that was good. Verse 11, God then said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, yielding uh, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, etc., etc. Do you see what is going on here in Genesis chapter 1 and in chapter 2? What we see here in these opening chapters of the Bible are progression and order and careful fine-tuning of creation so that life can exist. And this is something that actually science actually stands to help support our cause and to support our case. Because the more that science ends up examining our natural world, the more that science examines life, human life, animal life, plant life, the more they come to realize that there are just a whole host of factors that have to all come together in exactly the right way, at exactly the right place, in exactly the right time. Otherwise, you can't have life. you got to have the right galaxy. And you got to have the right sun. And you got to have the right distances between those planets and the sun. It's all got to be just right. Otherwise, there will be no life at all. For example, in an atom, that is the stuff that our universe is made up of. That's what you're made up of. In an atom, there are four fundamental forces that have to do with the way that that atom is, is bound up and functions. If you need more technical details about that, I'm going to refer you to Brother Robbie after services and he will explain all of that to you. But what I found is that if those forces, if they vary by one, just 1% in this direction, our universe would be made up entirely of hydrogen. And if our universe is made up entirely of hydrogen, you know what that means? That means that there would be no oxygen. Which means there would be no life. We could not be sustained. And in fact, if those atoms, if those uh, forces there, if they are one degree, if they vary in the other direction, then there would be no hydrogen at all. Which means that there would be no water, which means there would be no life. Everything is finely calibrated for life to work, for life to exist. Or what about this? What about how great it is that Jupiter is circling the sun. I've got to credit Brother Robbie with this. He brought this to my attention just last night. What about the idea that Jupiter is circling the sun and as we are circling the sun? Isn't that pretty great? Somebody's maybe thinking right now, I don't care about Jupiter. Why should I care about Jupiter? You ought to care about Jupiter. Jupiter is an enormous planet with a huge gravitational pull. And as it is cycling out there, it sucks in comets and asteroids. Comets and asteroids that would otherwise hit the earth and it would obliterate life on this planet as we know it. 
Jupiter then really kind of serves as a big giant vacuum cleaner in outer space. Who do you think is responsible for that? Who do you think is responsible for placing that exactly where it is to function exactly as it does? Or think about this. What about just our position in the galaxy? Earth, it is the perfect distance from the sun. If we were any closer, we'd burn up. If we were any further away, we would freeze. Earth is just the right distance. Not just from the sun, but it's also just the right distance from the moon. And it's the right size in relation to the moon. Because the moon helps us, we're able to receive from its gravitational pull, which affects the movement of the ocean tides, so that the waters don't just spill over and flood the entire planet. All of this, and we could keep enumerating example after example of this. All of this is to say that everything has been perfectly arranged. Everything has been perfectly set into place in order for life to exist on our planet. One astronomer, he actually sat down and he figured up, he estimated, what are the odds that a life-friendly planet could get all of those things right, all of these things and all the other things that need to be right? What are the chances that all of that could just happen by random coincidence? You know what he found? What he found, what he estimated, was that the odds of that happening are 1 in 10 to the 129th power. That is, let me spell that out for you, that is a 10 followed by 129 zeros. That number is pronounced, I looked it up, 10,000 quintillion, 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 quintillion. Those are better odds that Louisville will have to win the national championship this year. Those are astounding odds, aren't they? Those are incredible odds. Now, let me say, you can't look at all of that and say, well, I think all that just happened. No! The universe is here. That's point number one. But not only are we here, it seems as if everything is here in exactly the right place, in exactly the right position for life to this for life to grow and for life to thrive. And what we believe in all of that is that there is in fact a divine engineer who is behind it all. Now do you know what atheists have said to try and counter all of that? Atheists have said that well, there are actually billions of universes out there. Billions of universes that have just spontaneously created themselves. Billions of universes that have been created out of nothing. And so when you have billions and billions and billions of universes, eventually one of them's going to get it right. Eventually one of them's going to hit the jackpot. Those are extraordinary odds, but eventually one of them is going to land on the right number. Well, doesn't that just make us really, really lucky? Well, you got to wonder if the guys who believe this kind of stuff, if they play the lottery because they just love these ridiculous odds. We live in an infinitely complex universe. And science has certainly done its part to help us to understand about that. But what science has also done, maybe for some scientists, inadvertently so, is it has actually made the case for God. Because it has reaffirmed what the Genesis account, Genesis account records all the way from the very beginning. And that is that our world is finely tuned, finely calibrated for life. Which leads right into this third evidence for God. And that is the evidence for intelligent design. Imagine, let's do a little role playing for a moment. 
Imagine that you are a police officer and you get called to the scene of a crime. And there at this crime scene, you locate a dead body. Well, what are we looking for there? If we're police officers, what are we looking for whenever we see a dead body? Well, what we're looking for is we're looking to see if there's any, there's any purpose. If there's any intention behind this dead body laying on the ground. Because death by natural causes, that looks very, very different than somebody who has been murdered by a handgun or by a knife, right? So we're looking to see, was there any intention in this body being dead? Was there any design behind what happened here? Or imagine as well, imagine you're still a police officer and imagine you get a call out, there's a car wreck out here. Car wreck happens out here on 27. And you get called out to the scene of that accident, what do you do? What are you looking for? Well, you do some investigating, you start answering some questions, asking some questions, you start kind of surveying the scene and seeing what all's going on. You're doing all that to try and find out, was this wreck just kind of a random coincidence? Just some folks who just weren't paying attention and that's why the wreck happened? Or did maybe this wreck happen as a result of somebody doing this on purpose? Somebody got really mad, somebody had some real road rage in that moment and they intentionally rammed their vehicle into another vehicle. Or how about let me step away from the whole police imagery. How about let's pretend for a moment that you're an archaeologist. Imagine you're an archaeologist and you're on a dig somewhere, maybe over in another part of the world. And as you're digging, you find this really interesting looking rock. I mean, it's just just amazing how this rock looks. Well, is that just a rock that just randomly happened to be in that place and randomly happened to look like that? Or is it maybe an arrowhead that has been purposely carved and crafted to look like this, that there is some design behind it. You see, that's what we're talking about. Whenever we talk about this idea of design, we're looking to see, is there some intelligent, purposeful cause behind this thing? Intelligent design means that we can look at our world, we can look at our universe, we can look at creation, we can look at ourselves, and we can ask the question, does it show design? Does it show purpose? Does it show intent? Does it show that there is in fact a designer who put it all together? You want an illustration of that? I'll give you a really easy illustration of that. Look no further than those little organs that are lodged right there in the front of your skull. Right now, everybody is utilizing their eyes to either look at me or look at that really crazy animation on the screen behind me. And sometimes I think, and sometimes I wonder if maybe we just kind of take that for granted. The fact that we have eyes and what they are able to do. Those processes that are happening right now that enable you to see me or to see the screen, to see color, to see depth, to see dimension, to, to have peripheral vision, all of those things that are happening, all those things that are, that are coming together to work, those things are incredibly intricate. They are incredibly detailed and complicated. For example, did you know this? Did you know that your eyes twitch all of the time? They do. Your eyes twitch all of the time. Now, it may not be as visible as that little twitch that's happening there on that particular eye. But your eyes are twitching all of the time. It's something that's called vestibulo-ocular reflex. And it makes your eyes twitch in just tiny, kind of almost microscopic little movements all the time. Somebody's maybe wondering, well, why are my eyes doing that? Is something wrong with me? Why are my eyes twitching all the time? Well, what that is, is that's your body's version of Steadicam. Have you got a Steadicam feature on your phone and on your camera? 
If your eyes did not do that, then every time you got up to walk, or maybe go for a jog, or go for a run, your eyesight would get all blurry. Because your eyes would be moving as your body is moving and doing all of that. But those muscles in your eyes, they counteract the movement that your body is making in very small, sometimes very minuscule increments, even when you move your head or you make sudden movements. That's that's just amazing to me how all of that is working together. And there's just lots of stuff. Again, I'm just sticking with the eyes. We can talk about all kinds of things with the human body or animal bodies. But just think about your eyes. Think about blinking. Think about blinking. What all happens when you blink? Irrigation, lubrication, cleaning, protection. All of those things are happening every time you blink your eyes. Blinking is what makes the whole eyelid system work and operate. You blink 4,200,000 times a year. And everybody now just did it right on command. And you know, there's still even more on top of all of that. There's lenses and corneas and retinas. And don't forget as well that as great as it is to have eyes, that doesn't do you any good unless that eye is connected to a brain that is then able to process that image. It's able to then interpret what it is that you are seeing. It's able to take those visual cues and then work that through the lobes and all the stuff that the brain does. Let me just ask you right now. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to, I, I'm not an expert on this stuff. What about that just looks random? What about any of that seems to say, oh, it just happened to turn out that way? What about that shows anything but intelligent design? Intelligent design which necessitates an intelligent designer. In fact, that is the argument that David makes in the 139th Psalm. Because it is there that David says in verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. So the universe is here, that's evidence number one. And we are placed in the exact right spot in the universe so that we can sustain life, that's evidence number two. And then everything about our existence, it shows that we have been designed so that we can function and operate within this universe. And I'll tell you, atheists, they can deny that all they want, but the evidence shows. The evidence points to a designer. Which brings me then this morning to this fourth and final evidence for the existence of the God that we cannot see. And that is the fact that God actually has been seen. That is, in the Incarnation, of God in the flesh, Jesus the Christ. You know, sometimes we spend most of our time on those, like those first three kinds of evidences. And we should. Those, I mean, those, I don't say we should deny those things. Those are marvelous and powerful evidences and points that we want to make. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18, 19, and 20, and several verses that surround there, Paul actually says that when you observe those things, when you think about the law of cause and effect, when you observe the finely tuned nature of our planet in order for life to exist, whenever you observe the fact that this is all the work of an intelligent designer, Paul says in that passage, you can know. It is plain to you. You can know that there is a God. And in fact, Paul goes on to say, you are now without excuse. You don't have any excuse anymore just by looking at those things. 
But you know, sometimes, as good as those things are, sometimes what we need to do is we need to just go directly to the source. Because maybe the best evidence for the existence of God is the fact that God came here. He came here in the person of Jesus the Christ. In John chapter 8, please, one final verse this morning. In John chapter 8, this is exactly what Jesus claims. In John the 8th chapter, as Jesus is addressing a crowd of Jews who would very quickly become very hostile toward Him, in John the 8th chapter, Jesus says in verse 58, John eight fifty-eight, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I believe the greatest argument for God is Jesus the Christ. Because if Jesus is God, then what that means is, is that means that God has been seen. He came here. And that means as well that the New Testament, the New Testament documents, it contains the record of God's visit to planet earth. And if you believe the New Testament documents, then that means you believe that God is, because the New Testament affirms that He did indeed come here. And in fact, the New Testament reveals His purpose for coming here, and that was to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those four books are all saying, Look! Look! There is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ. And what about the rest of the New Testament? Well, the rest of the New Testament tells how lives of people were changed by the coming of God to this earth. And what that means is, is that means that we then need to be asking the question, is the Bible reliable? Can I trust what is written and contained in this book? Because the Bible is telling us about God. The Bible is telling us that God exists. The Bible is telling us who God is and what God expects from us. And so is this book reliable? Can we believe? Can we put our faith in the Bible? And the answer to that question is the question we will explore this evening at 6 o'clock. And so I hope that you'll come back tonight as we talk about having faith in the book that we did not write. In the meantime, what we have is we have more than enough evidence. In fact, if we only had one of those things, it would be more than enough. But we have four things, and in fact a whole host of other evidences that can be provided to tell us that God does indeed exist. Even though none of us have seen Him with our physical eyes, we have been given ample testimony so that we are then able to say, even to a very godless world and a godless society, as we're talking with people and as we're having this conversation about how do you believe there is a God? We're able to say with boldness and with courage what Daniel said to a godless king in Daniel 2 and verse 28, that there is a God in heaven. And we believe that because it's true. We believe it because it is right. We believe it because it is the inescapable conclusion. It is the only reasonable conclusion. The evidence overwhelmingly screams at us, there is a God and He is alive. Now, just a moment, we're going to sing an invitation song. And what that song is going to do is it's going to give you a moment to think about that. Give you maybe a minute or two to think about that. And to actually stop and consider where you are in your relation to the Creator. Your 
Creator. What you believe about God, it makes a huge difference. It determines everything about you. It determines who you are. It determines how you behave. It determines what you're looking forward to and what you're living for. It determines what you are doing. It's not enough for you to sit here this morning and to hear this lesson and to say, okay, yep, yep, I I, I agree. There's no way to deny it. There is a God. God exists. No, that's, that's not enough. I'm asking you this morning, how are you responding To the God that you cannot see, but I will remind you, He is the God that one day, maybe this day, one day you will see. What then? If you have never acted in faith by confessing Jesus as Lord, as the Son of God, repenting and turning away from sin and surrendering to Jesus in that process known as baptism for the remission, the forgiveness of each and every sin, then this morning, this hour, this moment... This is the time to do just that. All things are ready. All things have been made convenient for you to become a child of God this very day. If we can help you this morning to obey the gospel, brother or sister, if we can help you to serve the Lord in a better way, then would you take advantage of this moment? Would you make your way right down front? Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.